Blog Talk Radio. And a very, very good evening to all you Brooklyn folk out there. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you active listeners in the research process of the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. Uh, and, and I'm very, very happy as we get back uh, settling into this uh, this podcast schedule of ours. This is the episode 72, uh, which is remarkable. This started in 2013, and here we are now. I'm going to bring on an old favorite, and uh, he, he is a man that goes by the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger name. And uh, you can find him at uh, thebrooklyntrolleyblogger.blogspot.com talking about all things Brooklyn, uh, whether it be sports or, or the borough in general, and that is Mike LaColant from Bensonhurst. Uh, Mike, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Good to be speaking with you, Sam. Well, it, it, it's always fun to have you on, on this podcast. We, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, we, we, we like to say on our Mets podcast, this is a full-service podcast, and the same can be said when it comes specifically to Brooklyn and what you and I talk about regarding the borough, uh, you, you know, whether it's uh, the Dodgers, whether it's the neighborhoods, uh, whether it be the subway system, we, we kind of go all over the place when it comes to that. And what I'm, what I'm going to start off with here is uh, something that, that does uh, pertain to uh, Dodgers lore, Brooklyn Dodgers lore, and that's where they could have ended up. And um, without going too much into detail, of course, uh, uh, your – job uh, sometimes finds you underground in certain places in Brooklyn. And uh, recently you've been at the corner of Atlantic and Flatbush, which, which is, of course, where they could have ended up had Walter O'Malley gotten his way. Uh, very true. Very true. And uh, I know what it's like to be underneath that intersection. So uh, very interesting, to say the least. And I remember you and I were talking about it a few weeks ago, and I said, say hello to the ghost of Robert Moses for me. And you said, he doesn't want to see me. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he's not, he doesn't want to bump into me, you know, especially in the dark alley. Uh, I think a lot of people, even his contemporaries, felt uh, likewise about him. Oh, that, that is for sure. I mean, you hear many, many stories. I was watching a... A documentary. I believe if you've ever seen it, it's the New York documentary uh, by Rick Burns, which is, uh, I believe, the brother of Ken Burns, uh, who is famous, of course, for the baseball documentary. The entire like ninth, or eighth or ninth episode is devoted strictly to the history of Robert Moses with this city. And about two years before Fiorella LaGuardia, mayor of New York City in the late 30s and early 40s, uh, before he died, a couple years before he died. He said and admitted to somebody, I forget who, but he admitted that he gave way too much power to that man, Robert Moses. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, way too much power. Uh, and, and he exercised it. <laughs> he exercised it with an iron yeah. hand. Uh, and he quite, I mean, in one sense, yeah, he did good for, you know, uh, with regards to expansion and opening up Long Island and, and building a highway system, which uh, the density of this metropolitan area demanded uh, prior to his uh, programs and, and, and construction. Uh, yeah, we, we were bereft of a highway system. Everything was streets and local 
you know, lanes and things of that nature, or, or railroad, or but, you know, long-distance driving, no such thing. So, yeah, he played a hand in that, and, you know, I guess kudos to him uh, for accomplishing that. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of negative he also uh, amassed along the way as well. I mean, he carved up neighborhoods and in, in, in many instances destroyed one uh, while, you know, uh, promoting others and, Oh, what a mess, what a mess. But, yeah, one guy should not not have uh, that amount of power centralized in his hands, no. What's interesting is that I've seen a a photo of him first proposing the the battery, and the original photo, the original concept of it was a bridge. And, obviously, eventually it was a tunnel, and and it certainly is convenient for anybody trying to get, let's say, for instance, um, uh, for myself, going to Flatbush, it is convenient to not have to cross through Manhattan over to the the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, And Mm -hmm. a lot of times you do find some heavy traffic, not only on the bridge, but on that stretch right before you get to the the battery intersection on the the BQE. Uh, But, uh, you know, at the same time, even as I go through and think to myself, wow, this is extremely convenient for myself to get from point A to point B, even when I'm going upstate, I do always, because of just just, uh, how much knowledge I've collected regarding it and how much knowledge I still have to collect regarding that and what he did to this place, uh, I still ask myself whether it was worth it as I cut through Williamsburg, as I cut through Astoria, uh, thinking about the Gowanus. And, you know, uh, he he would constantly refer to what many of the locals thought was a vibrant, vibrant neighborhood as a slum. And even if, you know, there were poor people, they were only poor monetary in a monetary sense, and they, they very much had a community built. Well, let's just get to the heart of the matter. He was an elitist. <laughs> you know? Right. Why right. beat around the bush? That's, that is uh, very interesting. I mean, you still see it with, with Third Avenue and the Gowanus. Uh, you know, it's obviously not that built up, even even though uh, people have, have moved down that area uh, because, you know, some of the rent's cheaper and, and uh, you have a lot of uh, young folk who, who want to say that they live in Brooklyn. Uh, you still say to yourself, wouldn't it have made more sense to, to run this thing along all those factories, which is what they tried to do, which is, which is what they tried to convince them to do. And... Um, in, in my development of, of the show, I'm thinking about putting one of the characters as uh, losing a job at a factory and starting work on the construction of the Gowanus, which I believe uh, started in 1939. Well, you know what? A lot of that development also had to do with the war effort. Uh, the reason why the Gowanus overpass is as high as it is is because of the, the Department of Defense required them to make it that high. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, Bush Terminals, all the factories along 3rd Avenue and 2nd Avenue and, and the waterfront uh, behind 1st Avenue and all the uh, the rails in place, uh, that was a, 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 a major supply depot for, for the military uh, and, and a major mm-hmm. staging area. So, you know, a lot of what went on over there on the western shore of Brooklyn uh, was dictated to Moses. I'm assuming dictated 
to to Moses by uh, Department of Defense. Uh, but I know for certain they required the height of the Gowanus overpass to be that to be that high. Yeah, and you know I biked uh, down that area. You know I I head sometimes to Bay Ridge, uh, and and I take Third Avenue, and uh, it, it it feels very desolate. I mean, um, you know, luckily Sunset Park is still uh, still has its 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 uh, charm. Um, not, not the same kind of charm that not not the same kind of charm that uh, that Park Slope has. Were you about to say something? I, yeah, actually, I got news for you. I got an update for you. Actually, uh, the buildings of Bush Terminals, and I'm talking uh, primarily between Costco and uh, uh, the uh, post office. So we're talking about 36th, 35th Street, roughly, between 39th mm-hmm. and 35th. Uh, all those buildings have been renovated, and uh, one of them, uh, uh, the one right next to Costco, is it? Uh, it it's basically a full-fledged mall now. A lot of businesses are moving in there. They're gutting the buildings, uh, and they're making them very useful again. Now, before all that, uh, you know, just like I find myself, you know, underground sometimes, I find myself in these buildings as well. And they had a fabulous collection of graffiti in these buildings that I took pictures of that I never posted yet. And I'm going to get around to it now because the great thing about graffiti, you know, it's here today and gone tomorrow. That's why a lot of yeah. guys are like to post it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it. Uh, that's all I want to throw out. No, about that. That's, that's one of the beautiful things about uh, uh, um, post-war. And, and it, 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 it's certainly... It, it's beautiful, and at the same time, you know, it, it, it's certainly a yin-yang, positive, negative at the same time because there's so it it it, it uh, brings up so many different emotional reactions, whether it's positive or negative, whether it they consider it art or whether they consider it vandalism. And I look forward to seeing those photos because I I am very fascinated with with graffiti in general and its role in the urban lifestyle. Yeah. It says it's, it's, it's art. It really is. I consider it yeah. art. A lot of it is beautiful. You know, I'm when it's ruinous. Some of the images. You know, when it's ruinous, it's hideous. But when it's artful, right. it's great. It, it varies for me. Like, sometimes when you just look at some tagging, you know, and, and you see it all muffled together in some of those photos from inside the train cars in the, the early 80s, mid-80s, uh, some of it is just like, you're like, did you really need to, to squish it all here? But then there's there's some of those, which you know must be scrap metal now, and and it, it might be, you know, a car eventually or, or, or something something else that, that was melted down. But you see these <laughs> things that really should be, that, that should be in, in urban museums. I mean, but obviously the NCA, as it was their property, was not about to, to preserve these things. No, not at all. And uh, as soon as you said the trains in the 80s, wow, what a big smile came to my face. Because I'll tell you, man, those train cars cracked me up. Cracked yeah. me up sometimes. I mean, you saw them. It started uh, in the 70s, of course. And obviously the Bronx was a, a big hub for it with uh, some of those yeah. those train yards out that way. And um it, it, it's it's just remarkable. I have this book called Subway Art, and obviously we're we're going a little bit off a tangent of my 1937 to 1957 
era that I like to keep, uh, you know, included. <laughs> but my, my my point the my point though is that the 1937 to 1957 era that we're trying to tell the story that we're trying to tell through this one corner of the world of Bedford and Sullivan through this this piece that I'm trying to put together. Basically, like I say, I, I, I think that it's the most important 20 years in, uh, that, that affected modern American history. And graffiti is certainly included in, in the thing to be born out of, you know, the, the decisions that were made in 1937 and 1957. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. It, it's definitely woven into the fabric of the city, without a doubt. Uh, you mentioned Bush Terminal, and I pulled up some of these uh, these photos, and mainly I think there a lot of them are, are uh, Life magazine photos. And there's this one magnificent photo of somewhere in the Bush Terminals of uh, a big train car and this man running towards it, uh, where there's there's this massive uh, building with the bridge uh, connecting between them. And, and it's a pretty spectacular photo that I'll, I, I will most likely post at some point on the uh, Facebook page tomorrow. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, Mike, I'm going to let you dictate the next uh, place that we go today on the, uh, the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Oh, wow. Uh, where are we going to go from here? That's a good question. Uh, let's stay at Bush Terminals because – the Brooklyn Nets took over one of those buildings, and, and that's where their practice facility is. Oh, that's great. That's great. And and where exactly is that located, uh, cross-section? Uh, that would be uh, ba -ba -ba, 2nd Avenue and 39th Street. I see it. I, I, I'm looking... Although that that looks like it's a, a a rendering, meaning it's not it's not completely done yet. But I'm looking at the, the HSS Training Center in Industry City, and it's a photo which must be of turn of the century that the NBA posted on their on their uh, page. And uh, perhaps, uh, yeah, it seems as if uh, yeah, there's that, and and that that is what it's nice to hear about the. Um, uh, the Brooklyn Nets is that even though, of course, they're having a pretty lousy season, if you want to go into that at some point, tangent that way, but <laughs> they're, uh, you know, they, they're, they're utilizing Brooklyn. And that was, that was the big point is not just to bring a sports team back, but to utilize the urban area that is Brooklyn. And, and that's what they're doing. And, uh, you know, Utilizing revitalization, uh, there's a lot of that going on, and I'm happy to see it, especially, you know, that whole waterfront, like I said, all the way from uh, from uh, uh, 60th Street, you know, all the way up, uh, up until 39th Street, and even beyond, all the way up until about 40th Street, that whole waterfront was full bore ahead throughout your years of 37 to 57. Right through the 60s, uh, it was in the 60s that, you know, everything shut down and came to a grinding halt. Uh, and, yeah. you know, the first the first thing that really killed Brooklyn Brooklyn was Prohibition. Uh, and and Brooklyn had so many breweries. Uh, it, you know, uh, I, I think at the time they were the largest employer in the borough. And, and the second real 
you know, shot to the gut was when the Brooklyn Navy Yard shut down uh, in its old function. Uh, at the time, you know, after the breweries, they were Brooklyn's largest employer. So when that, you know, when, when the function of that place ceased before it started getting revitalized again, like it's been over the last 10 to 15 years or so, you know, uh, I would just point out, point those two instances out as, as major blows to the borough of Brooklyn. And I'll even go here, because uh, as I was looking up some photos of Bush Terminal, I see from brooklynpaper.com a photo of Marlon Brando, which is based off of the jacket, clearly on the waterfront. So, yeah. you know, me being a movie buff, and it's been a very long time that I, since I've seen this, this movie, but uh, I, I guess that that's the waterfront they were referring to. Yeah, and, and I guess it goes right in the hands with the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn. Because everything was deteriorating, and so was the relationship with Dodgers here. So you had the waterfront deteriorating. You had the Dodgers situation in Ebbets Field deteriorating. Uh, you know, and, and that was just the beginning. It was two, three more right. decades of deterioration to come. Yeah. It says uh, uh, a great, this is on the side of one of the buildings back, uh, who knows what year this was. But the highway is already there, so my guess is it's – and based off the cars, it must be the late 30s. Um, a great industrial city within a city, owned and operated by Bush Terminal Buildings Company. Uh, and, and it's a little hard to make up the rest of it, but it's, it's definitely you know, a little bit of an advertisement to try to get your, uh, your folks out to out to that way. It's uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, and – and you, when you think about what you were talking about, the, the Dodgers and how it had started prior to the Dodgers leaving, the Dodgers certainly exacerbated the, the uh, deterioration. Yeah. You know, it, it, it just it infested the bar like a plague, you know. And uh, I, I guess that's how sometimes change is instigated, you know. Mm-hmm. Change is inevitable. Uh, how it occurs. That's always the interesting part. Now, now, let's say in any world, obviously this is very um, uh, hypothetical. If the Dodgers had gotten their way and a sports venue had been built at Atlantic and Flatbush, the deterioration would have continued, but what do you think the speed would have been? My, my guess is that the deterioration would have continued because the most urban environments at the time, because of the general U.S. policy, were all deteriorating. Uh, what, what is your opinion as to as to what Brooklyn would have looked like had the Dodgers stayed? Good question. Uh, it's a very good question. It would have kept traffic alive, foot traffic. Uh, so, you know, a lot of businesses perhaps might have been able to piggyback off the Dodgers being in that particular location. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Fulton Street perhaps would have benefited. Certainly, uh, uh, Flatbush would have benefited. Uh, you know, and, and, and whole neighborhoods. Because prior to Barclay Center, you know, don't forget that was open. They had to fill that in. That was open space. And basically that canyon 
uh, prevented uh, a commonplace for three neighborhoods from converging. You know, so it isolated three neighborhoods from each other, in my opinion. And now with Barkley Center there, or even if it would have been a, a new Dodger Stadium, uh, it would have been a, a commonplace for people to converge from the three immediately surrounding neighborhoods, Prospect Heights, Prospect Heights and, and Park Slope and, and Fort Greene. You know what I mean? Right. But that mm-hmm. cavern that separated one from the other, uh, it, it was like, uh, you know, an impassable border for some so I, I think there would have been good uh, that would have come out of the Dodgers staying. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, the newness of a park is always, you know, uh, worth a year or two or three before the roster wears off and it's business as usual again. But like I said, I think the Dodgers would have kept traffic going. Uh, and, and perhaps it would have stopped not stop, that's the wrong word, but perhaps it would have uh, slowed down the migration to the suburbs. You know, perhaps had they stayed mm-hmm. and, and built there, people would have had a change of mind. Businesses would have had a change of mind. Uh, even families might have had a change of mind and say, you know what, uh, there's something going on here. Perhaps this is sustainable. You know, because one follows the other, and, and and I do think all these relationships are intermingled. And and speaking of relationships that are intermingled, the Giants, uh, they were planning on moving, most likely had the Dodgers not intervened and said, why don't you come west with us? Uh, you know, most likely they would have made their way to Minnesota. Uh, they had an affiliate there. They had a built-in audience. Um but at the same time, I mean, like, you got you got to wonder. That's where it's like, well, obviously it was meant to be, and now we have the Mets, and I love the fact that we have the Mets. But, like, what what are what is Brooklyn and the Dodgers without the rivalry that is the, the Giants rivalry? Uh, no, you know what? If you were a Dodger fan, Sure, on the one hand, you would have hated to have your chief rival leave the city, uh, but it would just give us, you know, us Dodger fans more of an impetus to go to the park and just rail at them when they came to town. Uh, we would have still been in the National League. We would have still been playing seven other teams. It would have been business as usual, but because there wasn't our team that left, you know, Dodger fans would have been okay. You know what I mean? No, of course. Right, right. I, I see that. It's just, it's just so weird to think of, of, because obviously, you know, it's continued. It's still one of the top rivalries. It's still fun, right. uh, regardless how the teams are doing. Like if you're, if you have the MLB package, it's still fun to to uh, peer in on the Dodgers and the Giants rivalry, and and it was a natural uh, progression of of uh, hatred because. Uh, those cities are are such yin and yang uh, for themselves. You know, they're such the opposite over there, uh, and and they blend well to, as rivalries uh, before a sports team was ever involved. Um, and yeah. and it it did work well, and it was a natural progression. And you can 
see the lineage, and, and obviously the fact that the uniforms have never changed helps as well. Um, and yeah. it's, I just think it's so it's so strange to think of of what the you know the Dodgers would have been like without the Giants right then and there. And obviously, you know, Minnesota's not too far away. They would have still been playing each other as the Minneapolis Giants if that was the name they they kept. But it, it's such it's such fascination thinking of hypotheticals sometimes. And obviously, there's nothing you could. It's all speculative. It, it's a never-ending circle of speculation. Well, I'll, I'll throw this at you as well. Uh, the Mets wouldn't have been born because yep. the Dodgers would have they would have had territorial rights. So uh, they would have had the town all to themselves, you know, Yankees withstanding. So I think they might have even they would have even gotten bigger. Unless, I see that. And let's not forget let's not forget that O'Malley could have had that place if he would have just paid market rate. He wanted eminent domain and didn't get it. Yep. And that's why he ultimately fled. But I think the Dodgers would have gotten even bigger uh, and even more popular because uh, the, the attention would have been all on them. So uh, it's interesting. It's very interesting. And, you know, bringing up Walter O'Malley and the fact that he could have paid top dollar, you, you know, I, I try when it comes to Walter O'Malley not to hone in on just the, the quote-unquote uh, what was it? The um, Mussolini, Hitler, and Walter O'Malley in the boat <laughs> joke. And, you know, you know, and, and because I've heard some really, I've heard some great words spoken on this podcast even about Walter O'Malley. And the next time I have Carl Erskine on, I actually would like to do an entire podcast devoted to Walter O'Malley. Um, and, and so I try not to, to just completely. Uh, uh, sensationalize now, that one element of Walter O'Malley, uh, but it's different, now, I will say. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when the Dodgers wanted to build Ebbets Field and they were buying plots of land in Pigtown, weren't they not paying market rate for those plots of land? They were, they were, paying, um, they were paying market rate uh, until the last parcel when he realized what was up, and they couldn't find him at first. Uh, so, yes, most, I mean, because they were doing it very, very secretive and without right. the knowledge of, you know, of the people, uh, without, uh, without the owner's knowledge that it was specifically to get a ballpark together. Obviously, at some point, they knew that one person was buying all the land, and there was one parcel. And and as the story goes, and it's it's so cinematic to me that they they couldn't find the guy. They sent people looking for him in Europe. They sent some people looking for him in California, and he turned out to be in New Jersey, which is, <laughs> which is such which is such a such a New York thing to me. And, and obviously, it's 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 also very turn of the century, of last century, because. Nowadays, you could probably just you know type him into Facebook and be like, "Oh, he's 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 living in uh, Montclair." Yeah. <laughs> we're we're uh, we're running low on time. We're uh, uh, you know about uh, two minutes till the uh, the end of the episode. So, Michael, I'm you know we do this on the next podcast, and and we'll go ahead and, and merge the two a little bit. Uh, go ahead with your your last words. My last word, uh, 
I don't have one. Every day is fantastic here. I still feel that way. Uh, for New Year's, I spent it at Coney Island. Uh, they got this thing going on there for a couple of years now. And, you know, it's gaining momentum. Uh, the Cyclones kick up in June. I know that's still a couple of months away. But uh, we got this thing going on. And April 1st, the New York Cosmos soccer team will be opening up in Coney Island. So, All right. Like, you know, so, I mean, it's all here. <laughs> it's all, that's all I can say. It's all here. There's no reason to ever leave this place. Any, I can't even tell you the last time I stepped foot in Manhattan. I uh, I like that, and I'll also finish up with the fact that um, uh, the Israeli team who qualified in Coney Island uh, just right. uh, upset Korea the other night. And currently, you said they had a they had a six. Here we go. We have a six nothing lead in the bottom of the fourth uh, with my man Ike Davis uh, on that team as well. So. Uh, yeah, let's go. Let's go, Israel. Me being uh, of the Jewish faith, I, I am certainly honing in on uh, on them. Uh, uh, you know, being the underdogs in this. So uh, I, I have to say, let's go, Team Israel. That's my last word. Well, if they win this game, they'll have won five in a row because they won three games at Coney Island in September for the qualifier, and they won last night, or I should say, early this morning, and they're winning now. So that'll be five in a row, my friend. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for joining us on the podcast. And, uh, Mike, always take care. The pleasure was mine. Thank you, sir.